Richard, could you do me a big favor? My laptop's gone to sleep on me while I've been sitting waiting here. And uh, that would be really, really good. We're continuing today in the series that uh, Graham's outlined called Resemble God. Uh, and the Bible passage that I've been assigned today is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. And we'll spin that passage out long enough for Richard to uh, get my laptop back in, uh, in business here for us. So it's 1 Peter 2, 9 to 12. Plugged in but not switched on, John. Is that off your laptop? That's not mine, no. <laughs> So the Bible passage is, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I need to put a password in there. I can't give it to Richard or otherwise I'd need to kill him directly afterwards and that wouldn't be very good because he's got a wonderful family to look after. There we go. We're sort of in business if Mark could turn over screens for us there. And hopefully, it wouldn't work on there before. They've got it sorted. Very good. So, this passage that uh, we've been given today follows directly on from the one that Sue had uh, last week when we thought about living stones. And I'm very interested to see that the first word in our passage today is a very important three-letter word. It's the word but, but, there was a preacher, a British preacher, put together a sermon series, and so he liked to work it all out sequentially over a number of weeks, and it was the most successful sermon series he'd ever done in the life of his ministry and in his church, and he called this sermon series the Great Butts of the Bible. It went down a storm in the UK, so when he was invited to do a pulpit exchange with a pastor in the United States, he said, I know what I'm going to preach about. I don't know if you know about these pulpit exchanges. I I did one once. You swap houses, you swap cars, you swap churches, you draw the line at wives and children, but you go over there and he comes over here, uh, as the case may be. And the first Sunday he was in the United States, he stood up in church proud as punch because he knew it had gone down so well before and he said, I am going to preach to you on the Sundays that I'm here about the great butts in the Bible. And he couldn't understand why half the congregation fell about laughing and half the congregation had to discuss. But you've heard the story before. We sing the same songs over again, so it doesn't matter if you've heard the story before as well. The great butts in the Bible in the U- in United States means something slightly different from what it does in the UK. Anyway, we're going to get to the bottom of things now. We mustn't get... <laughs> We mustn't get too far behind with our timetable because we've already been delayed and our passage begins. But therefore, we cannot proceed without a backward glance to the passage with Sue. There's nothing wrong with backwards, was there? 
You know, when I was a little boy in our Sunday school in Liverpool, we had to do the scripture exam. Does anybody remember having to do the scripture exam when they were a kid? Yeah, one, one or two there. And, and there's one passage about Moses that I've always remembered since I was that high, and that was Moses went to look after his father Jethro's sheep in the backside of the desert, and it stuck with me all, all my life. One of the first verses of Scripture that I have ever known. But here's what Sue uh, was teaching us last week, 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8, two of the verses. Now, to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. We've had to go back there because but, B-U-T, is a joining word, and it's joining us to what's gone before. And the immediate contrast in our passage today with what's gone before is with those who do not believe. In other words, our passage this morning is clearly addressed to believers in contrast to those who, in Peter's words, disobey the message concerning Jesus. They are disobedient unbelievers, but you are not only living stones, as we heard last week. You are, well, what are you? Actually, Peter piles description on description. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, the people of God, and then almost bizarrely, foreigners and exiles, or as some versions say, aliens and strangers. Have you ever seen an alien? You want to see an alien today? Just turn and look in the eyes of the person beside you and say, you are an alien. Do it! You are an alien. Because as Christians, every one of us is an alien. If you're not an alien, you're not a Christian, Carol. Just look into my eyes. You are an alien. Okay. We're going to check these out one by one and go through it sequentially. And the first of these is we are a chosen people. I wonder what your experience is of being chosen. I think back to the playground as a kid at school. Do you remember that time choosing teams? I wonder if you were the person who was picked first or were you the one left till someone had to have you in their team? When it was, came to sports, I usually came into the second category, and I longed to be chosen. Or think back to the classroom, someone to run a message for the teacher. Did you go, me, 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 choose me? Or perhaps the dance floor. Choose me. I don't want to be a wallflower. Chosen to be a wife or a husband. Chosen for a job after interview. Actually, Does it make a difference to how you feel who is doing the choosing? Of course it does. Whether your track record in life is of being chosen or being left behind on the bench, here is fantastic news. As Christian believers, God has chosen each one of us. God has chosen us. We may think we choose Him, but amazingly, the Bible says He has chosen us. God has chosen us. The God that Linda was worshiping in that prayer just before the talk here, that God that we were singing about, beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, He has chosen us for His own special reasons. I hope that makes you feel wanted, loved, and special this morning. One of my favorite stage musicals is Fiddler on the Roof, and in one of his conversations with God, Tevye, the Jewish milkman's suffering under the Russian Tsar, shouts at God. He says, you say we're the chosen people. 
Why don't you choose someone else for a change? But actually, to be chosen by God is a fantastic privilege. And Satan one day whispers in your ear that you're a loser. Nobody values you. You respond, that's what you say. But I am chosen by God. A royal priesthood. The story we heard earlier about King Uzziah suggests a distinction between royalty and priesthood. Even the king was punished for assuming a priestly role. Historically, a priest was understood to be an intermediary, a go-between between man and God. The priest made sacrifices on an altar to cover the people's sins, but since Jesus, who the Bible describes as our great high priest, has sacrificed himself once for all on the cross for our salvation, we have access to God through him. So we are priests. Every one of us who's a Christian, we are priests. We don't need a human intermediary. And we're not just any old priests. We're a royal priesthood. We're related to the king. We're part of the royal family. We're related to King Jesus. And our privilege as priests is twofold. On the one hand, as we've seen, direct access to God, but also the privilege of bringing other people before God and praying for their salvation and well-being. And Satan whispers in your ear, who do you think you are? Praying's a waste of time. You're not authorized to speak to God. You're not authorized to speak to God on behalf of yourself or anyone else. But you respond. That may be what you say, but I am a priest. Indeed, part of a royal priesthood. I have the highest authority to enter the throne room of God and to petition Him on behalf of myself and of others. A chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, holy is an adjective which Graham unpacked for us a few weeks ago. Holy meaning set apart for God, resembling the God who says, be holy as I am holy. And we've previously considered holiness as an individual responsibility, but here's a corporate expression, a holy nation. You, the Christians, are a holy nation. Christians, believers in Jesus, together you are a nation. You have dual citizenship. You may have citizenship of the UK, but you also have a prior citizenship, for you are citizens of heaven. The people of Israel were first described as a holy nation at Sinai when God outlined through Moses a series of distinctives which would stand them in good stead through periods of exile which would surely come in waves through their history. Those distinctives were circumcision, kosher kitchen, and so on. Through these distinctives, they would maintain their identity as Jews. I wonder what distinctives identify Christians as belonging to a holy nation. Thankfully, they're not physical or dietary. They're more to do with character, the way we live. And the way we live as Christians and the difference we make in the world by living as Christians is summed up for me in a letter that was written a long time ago. It was subsequent to the Bible. It was the letter to a man called Diognetus. In the years after the Bible was written and after the Bible stories took place, 
There were a group of people called apologists who gave a defense of the faith against the hostile surrounding culture. Listen to these words of the letter to Diognetus in about the third century AD. Christians are not differentiated from other people by country, language, or customs. You see, they don't live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect or have some peculiar lifestyle. They live in both Greek and foreign cities wherever chance has put them. They follow local customs in clothing, food, and other aspects of life, but at the same time they demonstrate to us the wonderful and certainly unusual form of their own citizenship. They live in their own native lands, but as aliens, as citizens, they share all things with others, but like aliens, suffer all things. Every foreign country is to them as their native country, and every native land as a foreign country. They marry and have children just like everyone else, but they don't kill unwanted babies. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They're at present in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh." They are passing their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws and go beyond the laws in their own lives. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and they gain life. They are poor and yet make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of all things. They're dishonored and yet gain glory through dishonor. The names are blackened, and yet they are cleared. They are mocked and blessed in return. They are treated outrageously and behave respectfully to others. When they do good, they're punished as evildoers, but when punished, they rejoice as if being given a new life. They're attacked by Jews as aliens and persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them cannot give any reason for their hostility. To put it simply, the soul is to the body, as Christians are to the world. Isn't that fantastic? The soul is to the body, as Christians are to the world. The soul is spread through all parts of the body and Christians through all the cities of the world. The soul is in the body, but it's not of the body. Christians are in the world, but not of the world. That could be said about those Christians in the third century A.D., in a time of persecution, in a time of scattering, when Christians were having a hard time, they were different. They were clearly different. Their character was different. I wonder if that could be said of the Christians in the UK or the Christians in Bridge North in particular, a holy nation, different. In many ways, we appear to be like everyone else, but we are positively different because our identity is in our Father God. A holy nation, that's us. We are God's special possession. God's our creator. We're made in His image, but the Bible also tells us that God, in a sense, owns us because we're not our own. We were bought with a price with the precious blood of Jesus. Normally, the idea of being someone's possession is anathema to us. It reeks of slavery, which we abhor, and we rightly object to the commodification of women and children because each person created in the image of God has personal dignity. As parents, we do not own our children. As husbands, we do not own our wives. As wives, I'm not going to finish that sentence. We do not own our husbands. Do I? <laughs> Do I own my dog? Now, there's an interesting question. 
But what does it mean, however, to be God's possession? Firstly, it means we come under His protection, and that in itself is very special. If God be for us, who can be against us? But we're also called God's special possession. We're not God's cosmic pets. We're more special to God than Lord Grantham's Labrador to his master. We are the apple of God's eye. And when Satan whispers convincingly in your ear, you are a nobody, you can answer by some standards you may be right, but I am God's special possession. I'm special because God has loved me and he gave the best thing that he had to save me. Now, all of these things are worth celebrating. All of these things are worth taking comfort and confidence from, but our passage reminds us that we haven't always been this way. And in verse 9, we read this, God called you out of darkness into his most marvelous light. Once Satan had veiled your eyes from the truth about God and his love, and you were in the dark, but God lifted the veil, and you can now see things more clearly. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you were an individual, now you're part of something bigger. Now you belong. Verse 10 again, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's not very fashionable or PC to say it, but once we were under God's wrath, heading for a Christless eternity, but God has been merciful to us. We're no longer under judgment, but we're under mercy. And when we're reminded of that, we realize that with our special position that we've been outlining this morning, we've got a twofold responsibility. We've got a responsibility to God who's shown us mercy and given us this new status, but also we've got a responsibility to other people, those who in verse 8 do not yet believe. Peter's not writing to scattered believers simply so that they may feel good about themselves. He's writing to scattered believers to help them feel confident that they can play a part in impacting the society in which they live. And God chooses us in the process of bringing not-yet-believers under His mercy. He's chosen to use even us. So, verse 9, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who brought you out of darkness into His most marvelous light. Peter's explaining that God's purpose in saving us is that we might in turn be part of the process of saving others. What does this mean? It means don't just praise God for what He's done in the relative privacy of this building, but praise Him in the public square as you go about your everyday business. Where to declare His praises, and that involves using our mouths. But that's not all. Peter addresses the recipients of his letter as friends. He's not giving them a row. He's not putting them on a guilt trip. He's urging them as his friends to adopt a holy lifestyle. But just before we see what that is, notice that Peter now addresses these Christian brothers and sisters as foreigners and exiles. In one sense, for them, that was literally true. Because of the persecution in Jerusalem, they were now scattered into places where they didn't naturally belong. But for them and for us, the label foreigners and exiles applies. If we're a holy nation, if we're the people of God and the rest of it, then we cannot be too at home in our society. There's an inevitable tension. 
Don't get too comfortable then in the ways of this world. Keep your bags packed. Be ready. What does that mean? What's my responsibility as an exile? Would you look with me at Jeremiah 29 and verse 7 where we read these words, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The early Christians, as described in the letter to Diognetus, clearly lived this out. On the one hand, Peter says, abstain from sinful desires, keep yourselves clean. But on the other, do good stuff, bless your town, be known as good news people. But here's the spiritual health warning. Abstaining from sinful desires and doing good stuff will not necessarily make you popular. On the contrary, it might get you into trouble. Increasingly in our day and age, there's no might about it. It will get you into trouble. Nevertheless, let them see your good deeds. Be known as good news people. Be known as people who bless others. Not just at Christmas time, but people who provide debt centers, food banks, prayer opportunities. And here's the ultimate desired outcome, that those who are not yet believers, here labeled pagans, would actually glorify God. That they too would pass from darkness to light and become part of the people of God so that on the day that He visits us, Judgment Day, the return of Christ, however we choose to label it, the day of reckoning, our fellow citizens will also be ready to meet Him. I wonder how we're doing. Do we dare to be different? Or do we specialize in chameleon-like behavior, merging with the background, keeping a low profile, head under the radar? Let's look forward to this week. Despite what our calendars might say to us in our diary, Sunday is still the first day of the week. Looking ahead into the week, what will you be doing this time tomorrow? What's the implication of today's theme for the way we would behave this time tomorrow? Approximately 11.30 tomorrow morning, think where you are. And what difference will it make that you're part of a chosen people? that you're part of a holy nation and all of these other things that Peter has described us Christians as. I want to pray for us. I want to pray for each one of us in our different situations that God would just put something on our hearts which says at 11.30 tomorrow we will be reminded of what God said to us today and that we might be different. We might be holy we might be resembling God and that we might actually be influential in the process of other people passing from darkness into His most marvelous light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're actually quite overwhelmed when we realize the titles that You've given to us. When we think back to that story of Uzziah so long ago who got into terrible trouble for taking on himself the role of priest. And he was king at the time. And yet you tell us we are a royal priesthood. You've chosen us. We're a holy nation. We're the people of God. We are people who are to live differently in the world where you have placed us. We're not to get too comfortable in our community. We're not to get too comfortable in our society. But we're to be good news people in our society. May we be good news people in Bridge North.
May we be good news people in whatever community we live in. May we be good news people wherever we happen to work, whether it's here or whether it's out of town in some other place. And may we be good news people and different people resembling you specifically as we look ahead into this week. This time tomorrow, may we be different. May others notice the difference, and as others notice the difference, may they ask the questions to which the answer is Jesus, and may they be drawn to find out about him for themselves and to pass from darkness into his most marvelous light. Forgive us, Father, for those times when we're self-indulgent, when we think it's all about us, when it's all about you and your purposes. It's all about other people. Jesus first, yourself last, others in between. Help us, Father, to be different in the most positive way. Help us to be known in this town, in this nation, as people who make such a difference as those early Christians did. As the soul is to the body, so are Christians to the world. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.